As we continue our analysis and study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I want to first read our verses for this morning, which will be found in chapter 5, 7 through 14. So if you aren't already there, you can open your Bibles and turn to chapter 5 and look along as I read verses 7 through 14. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We've covered in great detail verses 7 through 10, so I won't go into them in any detail this morning, but this section is really a whole unit, and so it's good to be reminded of the whole context as we take smaller portions of Scripture each week. Now, just as a reminder, uh, there was a question about this. Some translations in verse 9 say, for the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Other manuscripts say, for the fruit of the light. We're really speaking of the same thing there, Uh, just a, a difference in some of the original manuscripts. Now, as we've been looking at these verses, we've really come to understand by now that there is a distinct difference between the light and the darkness, between the unbeliever and the believer. Paul's been quite diligent in making this distinction really from the beginning of the epistle. It's worth revisiting, however, just for a moment, the reason behind the repetitive nature of Paul's message. We've read that the unbeliever is dead and his sins Trespasses, we have been told that they are darkened in their minds and in their hearts. Paul tells us that the unbeliever is a child of wrath and that they are darkness. And then we have this constant comparison as he then goes on to tell us that the believer is rather a child of light. An heir in Christ is sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he goes on and on giving this comparison between the unbeliever and the believer, the darkness and the light. But Paul's not being repetitive because he has nothing more about which to write. We need to remember that Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So every word, every sentence, every bit of grammar is intentional and is deemed necessary by God or we wouldn't have it. So when it seems like there's a repetitive theme in Scripture, or when it seems like the writer is communicating very similar ideas over and over, we really need to stop and consider the reason. Here I want to make two observations concerning why the Christian needs to be reminded as frequently as Paul does here that the light and the dark are two different opposing natures. The first observation is this, that all Christians are born into darkness. You're not a Christian originally. We're all born into darkness. We're all trained by the darkness, and we all develop life patterns in line with the darkness. Sadly, I think few Christians consider just 
how much the world really does train them before they come to Christ. And then there's sort of this false idea that a lot of believers have that once you become a Christian, all of a sudden those habits, those thoughts, those ways of life just instantly disappear and become saintly. But that just simply isn't true. Now, God can undoubtedly break habits instantly if He chooses. We've all heard stories of, for instance, the drunkard who comes to know Christ and then instantly he's set free of his drunkenness and he never touches another drop of alcohol for his life. That certainly happens. We have all heard stories of the man who speaks worse than a sailor with a foul mouth and when he comes to Christ, he never again uses that type of language. But that isn't the norm. That's not the standard. And that's the very reason that we read in Scripture such things as Paul said back in Ephesians 4, when he told the believers in Ephesus that they need to be renewed in the spirit of their minds. Well, why did they need renewing? Well, because what they had been trained in was dark and not of the spirit. So the fact is that we are so entrenched in the ways of the world, at least most of us, that we need to be repeatedly told, which the Scripture does. Things like, put on the new self, as Paul admonishes the believers in Ephesus to do in chapter 4, and verse 24. Now, if you'll recall, Paul gives quite the list of behaviors, and we've been studying those to which we must choose to be obedient. And it's really necessary that he gives these lists because we have been so well trained by the darkness that we now need new training by the light. Colossians 3.10 also speaks of putting on the new self and being renewed. And in Romans 12, 1-2, we read this. It says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so here, Paul's urging Christians. He's speaking to Christians in Romans here. He's urging the brethren. He's pleading with them that they live a holy life and that they not allow the world to conform them again to the darkness from which they came. When one comes to Christ, the reality is that they often have years of worldly learning to overcome. One thing that really boggles my mind today is how shocked parents seem to be when they send their children to public school and by the time they finish, they want nothing to do with God. I think Vody Bauckham said it best when he said, and I quote, we cannot continue to send our children to Caesar for their education and be surprised when they come home as Romans. And then there's this absurd notion, which I heard even fairly recently from a pastor, that Christians want to send their child to public school to be a witness and to get involved in the community. Well, to be candid, that's about the most ludicrous, inane, and unintelligent thing I've ever heard concerning that topic. For starters, many of their children are not yet Christian, so who are they going to be a witness for? 
they're just as lost as the kids with whom they attend school. But secondarily, the scriptural command is that the child is to be trained in the fear and admonition of the Lord, not sent out among the wolves before they're ready to see if they survive. But many parents treat their kids like some kind of Christian experiment. They basically send their kids to the world before they've been trained in the things of the Lord, and they effectively say, hey, you know, we're Christian, so let's just give our kids to Caesar and see what happens. Maybe they'll survive. And then when they come back hating God and acting like the world, they're surprised. I'm not sure why any of that makes sense to believe that it's okay to do. Well, well, what does all this have to do with being trained by the world? I think you can make the correlation there. And it's a brief aside, but it's not unrelated to what we're speaking about. We're talking about being trained by the darkness and the need to be reminded constantly as Christians what it means to live in the ways of God. Did you know that the average student spends... 1,260 hours per year in school from kindergarten to 12th grade. That's 16,380 approximate hours of training from a world that hates God and Paul says functions with darkened minds and callous hearts. 16,000 plus hours of training just from kindergarten to high school. What does that look like on a weekly average? Well, on a weekly average, that's about seven hours a day. And that's compared with just a few hours at home with parents. And those hours with the parents really, if we're honest, only count if there's very intentional training and interaction. And then if we're honest, we have to admit that that's just simply not what happens in most families today. This is significant to understand for children's sake, but not just for children, because in reality, if you as a Christian went to public school, went to secular university, even with intentional parents, you can realize how much you've been trained by the world. In fact, you were steeped in the world and indeed essentially belonged to the world. And as Christians, or really anyone, no one should expect to undo 16,000 hours of training in a system that hates God, rejects God, denies the existence of God. No one should expect to undo all of that training in just a few hours a week. One reason it's vital to attend church as often as possible and to read your Bible and study your Bible regularly is that we have a lot of training to undo. Now, Paul realized just how deeply the world is un- ingrained in the believer. He wasn't naive. He knew that the Christian needed constant reminders. In fact, Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. You know the verse. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. And he goes on to list all these ways of life. He says, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But, or rather, verse 11, such were some of you. Paul understands the darkness that Christians came from. 
Some of you were murderers. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were all of these things. But you were washed. You were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit. So Paul was well aware of the darkness from which man was born and comes out of. And so for this reason, the Christian needs to be reminded often. We need repetitive teaching of godliness, holiness, and righteousness. The second observation I want to make is that not only are we born into darkness and we've been trained by the darkness, but once you become a Christian, God doesn't remove you from the dark world we live in. Right? We understand that. We still live in this world, and it isn't God's intention to take us out of the world. But because we are surrounded as aliens in darkness, we still need constant reminders that although we are in the world, we are not to be of the world. Although we live in this world, we're not to be like this world. This is the reality. We now live in a pagan society. We do. Like it or not, the U.S. is not a Christian nation. Our laws support the most heinous of crimes against God. Our politicians support, promote, and collude with the vilest of sins. And the open hatred of Christianity is on the rise. That's just the reality. You can't turn on the television today or browse anything online without being bombarded with godless advertisements which celebrate death and sin. But the Christian isn't meant to avoid the world. Dark as it is, the Christian is meant to be a light in the world. Jesus says to the disciples in Matthew 5, 13-16, He says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be trampled out and thrown underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But there is a real danger that Although we're meant to be light in the world, that we allow the world to impact us. So we have to still guard our hearts and still guard our minds against the temptations of sin the world offers. We came from this dark world, and often, and often, whatever sins we had before coming to Christ, along with the sins of the culture, still attempt to pull us back from time to time, and we have to resist those things. It's like we said earlier. It's not as though once you become a Christian, all of a sudden you're no longer tempted or you no longer have propensities to, towards sin. That's just not the norm. And Paul, writing to the Christians in Ephesus where we see all this repetitive type of language, he understood the culture. He knew the background from which the believers at Ephesus were part of before conversion. He most certainly knew that living in a dark world would bring temptations for the Christian and that they would need to be reminded of the difference often between the light and the dark. 
And so we see these types of encouragements as we've been getting in Ephesians really all throughout Scripture. While the world tries to convince you to engage in those things that are dark and horrific in the sight of God, for instance, Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. With you. While the world says live for here and now, do whatever feels good to you, the Christian is reminded in Colossians 3.2 to, quote, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Why does the Scripture seem so repetitive? Why does our Ephesians seem so repetitive when it comes to the difference between the light and the dark? Very simply, because we need it. We came from the darkness and it wants us back. And though we are no longer darkness, but now light in Christ, we still live in a dark world. We're still bombarded and being trained by the world just in the things that we see from day to day. And we need, because of that, constant encouragement and reminders. As we come to verse 11 in our text this morning, and we'll be focusing on 11 through 14, really, it should then be no surprise to hear Paul state again what he said in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Verse 11 says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. But now he adds something new, something more. He says, But instead, even expose them. Now, I think it's vital that we recognize and understand the times we live in. We need to understand the day in which we live so that we understand how we are to live out this text in our own day. I think truly we're at a critical time in our history as a country when laws have so quickly become not laws that reflect any type of righteousness, but rather laws that are laws of dark deeds. We've said it already, whether we like it or not, America is not a Christian nation. In fact, it isn't predominantly Christian in any way. And we just need to be honest about that. We're increasingly becoming just like the societies during the times the Scripture was written. There's not a whole lot of difference between the culture in Ephesus and the current American culture. Yes, we have modern inventions, we have advances in medicine, and we have technologies that the apostles couldn't have even dreamed of, but our culture has become, again, a pagan culture. Not too different than when Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. The biggest god in our culture is abortion. Not very different than worshiping Moloch and sacrificing children to Moloch. Instead of sacrificing children to Moloch, our country sacrifices children to Planned Parenthood. The better we understand the world around us, 
the easier it will be for us then to apply the Scriptures to our lives so that we might live a life that's pleasing to God in our day and age. Let me just give you an example. If you consider the latest law passed on December the 13th, our president signed a law named, quote, the Respect for Marriage Act. It's anything but that. But in short, the act redefines how America understands marriage. This new law codified the definition of marriage to include homosexual so-called marriage. That is the law of the land in America now. The redefining of marriage. It provides no true protection for religious beliefs or free speech as we've known it in America. And the aim is undoubtedly to force this definition on all American people. But the reality is simply this. God alone gets to define marriage. God created the institution of marriage, and marriage is a reflection of the marriage union between Christ and His bride, the church. And God has ordained that marriage is only between one man and one woman. So no, there is no such thing as homosexual marriage. Now, homosexuals can do whatever they like, but there's no such thing as homosexual marriage. And as believers, we have to take a stand here and not be partakers or participators in their deeds of darkness. You see the application there. We don't acknowledge any marriage other than what God has ordained. As a pastor, I'll rot in prison before I marry anyone other than one man and one woman. And as a church, the church at large, it must stand firm on God's Word and God's definition of marriage. Now, I think we can do that wisely. I think we can hold to God's truth and God's definition of marriage boldly and yet graciously. I think we can be uncompromising and yet kind, and we must, but we must never participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. So we see our society returning to the same darkness that has engulfed really much of the world since the beginning of time. But God, loving and gracious and wise, has given us a book. He's given us a book. And He's given us the Holy Spirit to guide us through this life so that we might live in a dark world as light. Now what does it mean to not participate in the deeds of darkness. Well, it means not to be associated with, not to be friendly to, or not to identify with darkness. In other words, I don't say things like love is love. That's not true. God defines love. Marriage isn't just a union between any two people. It's a, it's a union between a man and a woman. One man, by the way, and one woman. So we don't participate by even acknowledging their new definitions. But again, and I want to say this doesn't mean that we aren't to be around unbelievers, right? <coughs> but our attitudes, our speech, our choices, even when we are around unbelievers, are to imitate the character and nature of God. 
we have to be around the world, right, in order to be a witness to the world. We, we can't become reclusive. But we're never to partner with the world. Now concerning believers who are doing these same kinds of things, these un, and are unrepentant in sin, we're told something a little different. We're told not even to associate with them. Listen to 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean at all the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Do you, you understand? Paul's saying, I wrote to you not associate with immoral people, but I wasn't talking about immoral people of the world. You have to be around them. Otherwise, how do you witness? 11, verse 11 says, But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. I mean, this is as clear as you can get. We're not to have any fellowship with those who profess Christ and yet live in unrepentant sin. Paul goes on to say, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you, do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourself. Now, if you read the beginning of that chapter, you come to discover that what Paul is addressing is the issue of a professing believer in the church at Corinth who is having an incestuous relationship. And he's appalled that they've not put this professing Christian living in this heinous sin out of the church. And he's saying, no, don't even associate, don't even eat with someone like this. The body of Christ is to be kept pure and unrepentant sin cannot be overlooked. And Paul's saying that we break fellowship with such people who profess to be believers, not even to eat with such a one. I mean, this is a complete and total ostracizing of a professing believer who is living in unrepentant sin. Now, I want you to remember the purpose for this type of discipline. It's meant to bring the weight of sin and the consequences of sin on that person to such a degree that it brings them to repentance. They need to feel the weight of unrepentant sin. And if they do repent, then they can be restored and welcomed back into the body of Christ. But until then, we're to have no fellowship with them. Now, I just want you to see the difference here between the way we interact with those in the world and those in the church. We're to have no participation or fellowship with deeds of darkness, but that's not saying that we aren't involved in or around the godless in the world. Because we have to be in the world in order to be a light to the world. But when it comes to dealing with the church, there are higher standards. As there should be. And that's the difference between the two. 
Those who profess Christ are simply held to a higher standard. And the church needs to, the world needs to look at the church and see something entirely different. The world sins and they ignore it. They even celebrate it. The world needs to see that the church, when someone is unrepentant in sin, that it's not tolerated. Even church discipline we do sorrowfully and we do lovingly, but it must be done. We are to imitate Christ. Jesus Himself met with, talked with, ate with, and interacted with unbelievers. We, we know this, right? Now, I do want to say this is where liberal theologians sort of attempt to twist scriptures, especially when we talk about the LGBTQ community. They'll say things like, see, it's okay to fellowship with the world. Jesus ate with sinners. And that's true. Jesus did eat with sinners. But Jesus didn't join in their wicked practice. Jesus never would have condoned a sinful lifestyle. In fact, repeatedly, He speaks against it. He didn't cozy up to the sinner to make him feel at peace with his sin. On the contrary, in fact, we read of Jesus in Mark 1, 14, 15. It says, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee. Well, what did Jesus come doing? It says he came preaching the gospel of God. What was he preaching? What was he saying? And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, Jesus came to call the sinner to repent and believe in the gospel. And so that's what we imitate. We have to be in the world We're not to be like the world. We're to be in the world so that we can call the world to repent and to believe in the gospel. So whether it's refusing to participate in the dark deeds of the worldly or even refusing fellowship with those who profess Christ and yet live in unrepentant sin, the result is the same. The children of light are never to engage in, participate with, or be associated with the deeds of darkness. Now, you'll notice in verse 11, after Paul essentially repeats the admonition from verse 7, he gives now an alternative. So he's told us what not to do. Now he's going to tell us what to do. So he says, don't participate in dark deeds, in sinfulness, but rather here's what you should do. Instead, expose the dark. Now, the question of how do we respond to evil and the darkness around us, I think this is the area that really paralyzes a lot of Christians. Christians love to hear how to walk in the light and how to walk like Christ, and they love to hear what the Holy Spirit's done in you and that you've been made righteous and that you've been made like Christ. But then when you start speaking about how then do we respond to evil, Christians start to get paralyzed. The Christian knows that he shouldn't partake in the deeds of darkness, but what is he supposed to do about the darkness? We realize we aren't supposed to celebrate so-called gay marriage, but what do we do about it? What do we say about it? Do we say nothing? Do we hide? Do we go back to some sort of monasticism? 
I mean, after all, that was the very reason that type of lifestyle came into being. The idea that in order to resist being tainted by the world, you had to be completely separated and cut off from it. I mean, do we build large communities of mostly Christians? Some people are attempting that today. I mean, we have to be honest, sometimes that's appealing. But that's not what Christianity is about. We read the words of Jesus earlier in Matthew 5.16 where He says, Let your light shine before men. So Paul tells us that instead of participating in the deeds, we're supposed to expose them. Now it's important here, and it's very important, that we don't misunderstand what it means to expose them. I think there's a, oftentimes there's a ditch on both sides of the narrow road of theological truth and understanding. The word itself, expose, means to convict, convince, reprove, or rebuke. That's what the word means. To convict, to convince, to reprove, or to rebuke. And there are two things that we really need to understand here about what it means to expose dark deeds. The first thing that we need to understand is that in exposing, it requires an active role which means monasticism just simply isn't the answer. Becoming a recluse, sheltering yourself from the whole world is not the answer. It's an active role. There's no such thing, in other words, as a libertarian type Christian. That's to say there's no such thing as a live and let live version of Christianity. That's not Christianity. The Christian has a commission. The Christian has a purpose and a way of life that's always contributing in some way to the glory of God. Far too many Christians want to remain invisible, so they do nothing. They say nothing, and they contribute to nothing. I mean, imagine how many loved ones, or neighbors, or co-workers, or acquaintances never hear the gospel because Christians are apathetic and just want to be unseen. John MacArthur once said, and I quote, a Christian who no longer has a struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil is a Christian who has fallen either into sin or into complacency. A Christian who has no conflict is a Christian who has retreated from the front lines of service. And I think he's right about that. You can't expose dark deeds and remain anonymous. One of the most cowardly things about social media today is anonymous accounts. The second thing that we need to understand here is that exposing the deeds of darkness While it may happen in various ways, we do this primarily in three ways. I want to give you three ways that we primarily expose the darkness. Let me tell you what it's not before we get into these three ways. What he doesn't mean by exposing the darkness is standing on the side of a street corner with signs that say crazy things like, you know, this person or that person's going to hell. There's no chance for you. What it doesn't mean is 
threatening to do ungodly things to hospitals and abortion clinics. It doesn't mean to be hateful and arrogant and unkind and rude, which is the temptation of the day. That's not what exposing dark deeds is about. What's the first way we do this? Well, the first way is by our lifestyle. The first way we expose the deeds of darkness is by our lifestyle. The second way is by speaking up against it. And the third way is the gospel call. Now, let me elucidate on those. Our lifestyle as believers should be a silent rebuke against all ungodliness. That's one way. That's one way. It should be our silent rebuke against all ungodliness. I'm reminded of the scene in Pilgrim's Progress where the pilgrims come to Vanity Fair. I don't know how familiar you are with Pilgrim's Progress, but let me just read a short excerpt of that to you. It goes this way. It says, Now, as I said, these pilgrims must necessarily pass through this fair. Well, so they did. But especially note that even as they entered the fair, all of the people there became disturbed, and the whole town itself was turned into a commotion around them. They, there were several reasons for this. Namely, first, the pilgrims were dressed with a different type of clothing that was quite different from the attire of those who traded at this fair. Therefore, the people of the fair stared at them with astonishment. Some of them said that they were fools, and some called them bedlams or madmen, while others derided them as outlandish men or foreigners. Second, as the great crowd wondered at their clothing, they were similarly curious about their speech. For few could understand what they said. The pilgrims spoke their native tongue, the language of Canaan. But those who managed and frequented the fair were the men who spoke the language of this world, so that throughout the fair their foreign speaking made them appear as barbarians in their midst. Third, and this did especially amuse the merchants, these pilgrims placed little value on all their goods. They did not care even to browse at them, and if they were solicited to buy such items, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry out, Turn away my eyes from beholding vanity. And at the same time, they would look upward, signifying that their trade and commerce were with heaven. You see, one way the Christian exposes the deeds of darkness is to live a life of such stark contrast that it is a silent rebuke in and of itself. That's a beautiful picture of the Christian life here in Pilgrim's Progress. You see, their dress was different than the world, their speech was different than the world, and their interests were different than the world. And just because of those things, it was a rebuke on all of those who were in the Vanity Fair. Obviously, we have to be around the world if we're going to be salt and light. But our lives should be different, and so we have to ask questions like, do we participate in coarse jesting or obscene jokes? Do we even laugh at those things and join ourselves in discussions that we know are displeasing to the Lord? Do we tolerate it when men of the world gather around and demean women as they often do in the world? Or do we walk away or kindly put a stop to it? Our life should in its of, of itself be a rebuke and expose the deeds of the darkness. Beyond that, do we dress differently? 
Now, this is particularly relevant for women. This is just how it is. Although I don't fancy seeing any dudes in biker shorts, but the question is, do we join into the same fashions of the world, which is undoubtedly sexualized and designed to attract the eyes and attention? So are you modestly dressed? What about the language that we use? There seems to be a growing trend and tendency of Christians to use foul language, even some so-called pastors to use foul language from the pulpit. That should never even be heard of in the church. And so do we participate in the deeds of darkness by our language, or are we known to be very different even in our language? Are we kind and gracious? Do we use language that's glorifying to God, which in and of itself will be noticed to be different? These are all meaningful ways that our lives become an active way to expose dark deeds. So the first way to expose dark deeds is through our lifestyle. The second way we go about exposing dark deeds is to rebuke them openly. There are times when this is absolutely necessary. Look, I know it's talked about often, but it's sort of the center of what's running our country, the ethos of our country now. We can't stand by and allow the LGBTQ movement to go unchallenged verbally and publicly. We can't allow marriage to be redefined and perverted without us challenging it. We are talking about people who are so perverse, so darkened in their hearts and minds, and as a country that's so sin-sick that they're now targeting children, grooming them to become future objects of their desires. This cannot be unchallenged by the church, and it requires open and public re rebuke of this kind of dark deed. Now, there are plenty of other issues that require more than the silent rebuke of our life, of our lifestyles. Now, I want to say, that doesn't mean we don't rebuke graciously and kindly and gently, but we have to do it. And of course, for those in the church, we always confront sin directly. In fact, if we love truth as Christians, if we love Christ... And if we love one another in the church, we should first want to be corrected ourselves if we're sinning. Right? The Christian who loves truth and loves God wants to be corrected if there's some sinfulness in his life that he doesn't see. And then beyond that, if we love one another, we should be willing to correct lovingly our brothers and sisters for their sake and for the sake of the purity in the church and mostly for the sake of the witness of Christ. So sometimes we rebuke and expose the deeds of darkness by our lifestyle. Sometimes we have to do it bluntly and plainly with words. But lastly, and arguably the most powerfully and the most effective way to expose the deeds of darkness is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, this is our task as Christians. This is the mission of every Christian, the Great Commission. 
Not to make converts, but to make disciples. But making disciples first requires converts, right? You can't make a disciple out of someone who's not converted. And the gospel confronts the dark head on. It exposes the darkness and it brings it into the light. There's no greater way to expose darkness in the unbeliever than telling them of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And arguably, this should be the primary way to expose the dark. The gospel exposes the sinfulness of man and it calls him to repent and to turn to Christ. The gospel, as we well know, means what? Good news. So what is the good news? The good news actually starts with the bad news. And the bad news is that man, while he once thrived in the Garden of Eden with a direct relationship with God, decided to sin against God and forever sever that relationship. From that moment on, every man is born with sin in his heart to such an extent that he is in fact a hater of God. He may not say it with words, but he's defiant because he breaks God's laws and he enjoys it. The bad news is that because of this sinfulness that's in every man, man is separated from God because God requires righteousness in order to have relationship. God is holy and can only fellowship with that which is holy. And of course, some men say, well, how have I sinned against God? God says, if you've ever lied, you've sinned. If you've ever stolen, you've sinned. If you've ever looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've sinned. If you've ever coveted anything, you've sinned. If you've ever been angry with improper motives in your heart, you've sinned. So the bad news is that God cannot and will not fellowship with sin. And in fact, sin is deserving of the wrath of God. Therefore, the sinner, we're told, is a child of wrath by nature. And if man dies in this state as a sinner, God, as a loving God who cannot turn a blind eye to evil and sin, gives the just due penalty for that man, which is eternal hell. And that's a deserved penalty. Man chose to sin. He desired to sin. And every time he rejected the law of God that was written on his heart, he chose that. And in the end, man only gets what he deserves. There's never been an innocent man that goes to hell. For a life lived in utter rebellion against a holy God Hell is the only just penalty. That's the bad news. So what's the good news? What is the good news? Because that's the reality of man. The good news is the gospel. The good news is that Jesus came as man, fully God, fully man, and He fulfilled the law which man couldn't do on his own. He was perfect in every way. He knew no sin, we're told. And after He came and He lived a perfect life, he gave that perfect life as the substitute for all who would believe in Him. That's the good news. Isaiah 53 tells us that Christ was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was scourged for our healing. 
He did what man could not do. He lived a perfect life. And then we're told that He took our sins upon Himself. And He attributed His righteousness to us. So for all who profess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord will no longer see eternal death, but will instead receive eternal life. That's the good news. The gospel confronts man's sin and calls him to the light. And there's no greater way to expose the darkness than that. That's the problem with so much of evangelicalism today is that the gospel message has nothing to do with repentance. It's all a feel-good message, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Christ saves men from their due and just penalty deserved by their own sinfulness. By faith and trust in Him, He bears our sins and the penalty and the wrath of God on our behalf as we put our faith in Him. So we expose the deeds of darkness by living a holy life. We expose the deeds of darkness by at times dressing sin directly in a God-honoring biblical way. And then we expose dark deeds by proclaiming the gospel. All of these are active things the Christian has to do. You can't hide from the world and expose the deeds of darkness. Verse 12, as we move on, tells us that these deeds are so disgraceful to even talk about. They're too disgraceful, rather, to even talk about. This is a good point. We've got to be careful how we speak about certain evils. Recently, when I went to speak at the city hall meeting concerning LGBTQ books in the children's section. Do you understand that in the few minutes that I had in trying to explain the dangers of grooming children for that perverse lifestyle, there are things that were too perverse and wicked to even say in that public meeting. I'd never dream of saying them from the pulpit. In fact, I won't even say them around my wife. They're so perverse. There are things that the Christian just simply shouldn't even re-communicate. Some of these things are so vile that to say them outright would create and promote the very wickedness that's inherent in them. Sadly, our culture is becoming such that we're exposed to things even just 50 years ago you'd never even hear of. A hundred years, it wouldn't have been talked about in private. And now they're blasted all over social media. But the Christian shouldn't participate in these types of things. We shouldn't even speak of some things. For the Christian, there should still be shame in even elucidating on some of the things we see and hear today. We can speak to moral issues without having to give every ungodly detail. Paul goes on to say in verse 3.13 that because all things become visible, 
when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. In other words, he's just saying and communicating that the truth, the light, shows things for what they really are. Right? We're to test everything by God's Word, God's truth, and when the light of God's truth has been shown on a subject, we see it for real, what it really is. So does it matter who gets married? Well, let's go to God's Word and see what it says. The world says it's okay. Homosexual marriage is marriage. God's Word says marriage is between a man and a woman. Beyond that, it tells us that homosexuality is abominable. And that none who live that lifestyle will enter the kingdom of God. You see, God's Word, the truth, shines the light on the reality of what's in question. Someone in the world says, oh, well, this type of thing is a beautiful thing. But then when you shine the light of God's Word on it, you come to discover that, in fact, it's aberrant before the Lord. And so he's just simply saying the light exposes everything for what it truly is. And then Paul ends here really with a gospel call. This passage here is actually an adaptation from Isaiah 60. If you turn to Isaiah 60, we won't go there now. You'll see the parallels here in what Paul's saying. Some commentators actually believe that what Paul says here was used as an Easter hymn in the early church addressed to unbelievers who might be hearing. Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's very interesting Paul puts this here because he's just talked about exposing the darkness. And we've talked about how the gospel exposed the darkness. Awake, sleeper. In other words, you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, you who are in darkness, awake. Awake, you who are a children of wrath. And arise from the dead. In other words, turn from your sins. Repent before it's too late. Christ will return again to judge the living and the dead and your fate will be sealed. And the wages of sin is death. Arise while you still have time and Christ will shine on you. The glorious welcome into the kingdom of God if you awake and you arise. In other words, if you repent and if you return to Christ, He will shine on you. Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What an incredible address the early church had to the unbeliever. Let's pray.